This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Hansen. Thurley Ruxton by Philip Virrell Miguels. Chapter 14 A Triumph and a Jar. For thoroughly the horse show was over, while the consequences of her appearance there had only as yet begun. For the two or three days next ensuing, she was dimly aware of a small gnawing worry that robbed her pleasure of its fullest charm. She wondered a thousand times if she had played the generous, creditable part in withholding her look of recognition from her cousin. Time after time she informed herself that she had followed the only possible course, that no good purpose could have been served by betraying her real identity to one so far removed from herself by everything of life. Yet the haunting reflection still remained that her cousin had been denied. For a much briefer time her mind was concerned with the image of that other woman's face and its insistent eyes. All worries were presently swept away, however, in the wonderful tumult of pleasures and experiences impinging on her changed existence. Magic followed magic, at the conjuring of money and her own inherent charm, like an avalanche of dream imaginings, all wondrously rendered true. The favors of the gods were tumbling, gliding, and flowing in upon her. Wardrobes, jewels, the costliest furs, her own imported car and retinue of servants, and a bank account of startling proportions, entirely her own and subject only to her regal little self. As she was sought from noon till midnight by a hundred exclusive cliques among the women, she was courted, flattered, worshipped by a score of young princes of wealth, into the maelstrom of beings whose sole occupation is to woo, cajole, and entice pleasures to their grasp, she was whirled with dizzying velocity. Her feeling of security increased. Worries and apprehensions subsided rapidly in the conquering flood of everyday success. Her confidence became established, together with a mastery of herself and the situation, precisely as she felt her sense of mastery over horses and the giant forces of her car. The opera season opened at the psychological moment when her new assurance had lent the final polish to her girlishly regal ways. The Metropolitan premiere was a night of dazzling triumph for Alice as well as her protégé. Neither overdressed nor overjeweled, thoroughly was a vision of ethereal beauty and imperial grace, dividing with the wonderful music and power of Aida the honors of the evening. She was exquisite, as rare as an orchid, and at times as wholly unconscious of her loveliness. 
she was deeply moved by the searching voluptuous enchantment of the epic thus uttered forth in melody and in such mood drifted far from herself and far from the mimic play of which she was the centre she was watched from afar or from near at hand by whole blocks of box occupants and spectators seated less favourably in the orchestra stalls not one of her self-created satellites was absent from the house count faishi woods robley stivrant poor would-be busy willie stetson algy dearborn of near fame in limericks the german nobleman the canadian officer and a baker's dozens of less aggressive and persistent hopefuls were as near her as money and activity could place them not one in all the inventory had been permitted since the night of the horse-show so to ingratiate himself with alice as to have five whole minutes alone with her monarchical little charge the pent-up volcanics between them were therefore bordering on a state of eruption and counter-eruption more or less menacing to each this particular night afforded scant of any opportunity even to the most sagacious to steal a march upon his fellow-conspirators thoroughly was as it were equally divided among them all a fact affording intense if only temporary gratification to at least one little creature mildred gray who could almost have torn the princess to shreds for having cast her spell all unwittingly upon the willie stetson elsewhere mentioned but that night inaugurated changes it ignited all the glare and incense of the social ritual casting a blinding refulgence and an intoxicating fragrance of narcotic essences through all the gilded halls of pleasure and it struck into being in thoroughly ruxton's nature a tiny spark of wanton joy in her power a spark that has burned the heart of many of her sex to a cold black crisp at last something had echoed in her over-flattered self the mad desire for wealth position and power that had steeled her resolve when gaylord threw her off that far-back night in new haven it would be so good to retaliate to flirt with men to urge them on to play upon their fondest dreams and hopes only to crush them at the end it would salve so thoroughly the wounds acton gaylor had made in her heart to treat all his kind as he had treated her as hundred of his ilk were daily treating the college widows of her town she felt as if righteous indignation might almost have been delegated to herself from all college widows power to punish for the punishments that scores and hundreds had endured the power was hers at last without a realizing sense of all that was occurring she had achieved at a bound that very position she coveted so intently and resolved to have on the night of her anguish and her utter mortification she did not actually resolve to assume the grim role of nemesis 
to all the moths already drawn to her light, for a certain heartlessness and such deliberate intent was more or less impossible to her nature. She did, however, breathe fire and excitement in the consciousness of mighty power laid almost unbidden in her grasp. Moreover, she had promised Alice Van Kirk that she would not permit her heart to become seriously entangled for a year. If the men would come, many of them insincere, self-seeking, and scheming, they would scarcely be so defenceless and trusting as she had one time been. The hour and the world had been laid at her feet, and the thought made her drunk with delight. She thought of half a dozen men at once, with whom a tilt at the game of hearts would be only harmless diversion. She could not shut them from her life, nor think of them seriously for half a moment. She mentally bunched them like asparagus, and tied them about the waist. There was one, however, not included, either in the group of vegetable sprouts, or her half-formed intent to enjoy her wondrous power. The one was Robley Stiverant, somewhat sacredly set apart. She told herself it was merely for his wrist that he must be spared, but the hour of their meeting and the way thereof was rarely absent from her thoughts. Tonight, as the theme of the music and the play entwined a spell of tenderness, romance, and exultation, with her thoughts she could not surrender to a mere desire to exercise a selfish motive. Dreams of her past, some old, some as new as the hour in which she drove Styron's car, crept subtly to her heart, and kindled a glow as sweetly wholesome as the fire on a homely hearth. The hour was one not soon to be repeated, where she hovered like a girl emerging from the trust and innocence of youth to woman's conception of the world. In it were mingled all her old unworldliness and a dawning appreciation of the sovereignty thus magically bestowed upon her being. She loved her new-made power intensely. She loved the elegance, comfort, and beauty made possible by the life into which, in the argosy of fate, she had drifted thus incredibly. There was one thing missing only— someone to whom to tell it all, someone dear enough and near enough to share her joy and the wonder of such an occurrence, someone whom mutual trust and love would single out for such a comradeship that all they knew and felt and hoped must forever be divided between them. The ghost of Gaylord strayed like a mist through the glowing halls of her thought. He and she had once been so near this very sort of partnership and trust. A pang and another reoccurrence of her growing desire to repay his kind succeeded her momentary longing. And then her gaze, which had focused for a moment on the vagueness of dreams, swung out across the brilliant scene presented by the audience, 
and met the watchful eyes of Robley Stivern, seated nearby in the box. A quaint little exultation leaped in her heart at the sheer audacity and boldness of love encountered in his glances. It swept her for a moment away with himself to the car in the open park. Then she cast off the charm as she might have cast a chain, the links of which, though golden, lustrous, and light to bear, she would not consent to lock upon her arms. From box to box her eager attention sped, lingering here and there on the brilliant iridescence of diamonds and pearls that flashed from necklaces, tiaras, and even coronets, where woman gowned in bewildering richness and beauty vied with one another in display, and then, as before, sheer ravishment of melody, where the blended perfections of the orchestration uttered the joys and anguishes of souls at the brink of climax, caught up her soul, and she was wafted out on an azure sea where nothing of earth could exist. She was never able clearly to recall the kaleidoscopic panorama of sensations and emotions suggested, presented and withdrawn that wonderful night, her first of a kind which could never be repeated. She touched the heights of ecstasy and was floating blindly across the abyss that yawned below. She realized a little of the triumph that she herself achieved. For the greater part, however, it was all a blur of pleasure as dazzling and indefinite as the sun brightly flashing in a mist. Not even the wondrous supper afterward made a clean-cut impression on her mind, except that it, like all the rest, was perfect in its way, with more bright music people, joy, and irresponsibility. The one thing of the night destined to remain peculiarly vivid came last of all in her own boudoir, when she was once more at home. It was merely a letter from the cousin she had seen by the rail at the horse-show from her height above the crowd. It had been to New Haven, then to the office of Major Phipps, who had brought it here himself. With something akin to a chill at her heart, Thurley opened and read the missive. It was brief, a mere recital of the fact that the cousin had recently seen someone who reminded her so much of her one remaining relative that she had to sit down and write. If Thurley was living anywhere within reach and received this letter, perhaps they could meet. "'I am a little discouraged and lonesome,' the letter presently concluded, "'and I'm sure it would do me good to see you again.' I often think of you as the only real cheer I have had in many years. I hope this may find you and sufficiently arouse your former affection to make you wish to write at once and arrange a possible meeting with your fond and faithful cousin, Edith Steck. To Thurley's own amazement, she could not or did not immediately decide what course she should adopt. For two or three days the matter drifted, but Thurley did not forget. End of chapter 14